Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, movie troopers! Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm David Jenkins, and I'm Lillian Crawford. On the show this week, one of history's most famous figures at the centre of Ridley Scott's epic Napoleon, an unexpected romance blossoms in Fallen Leaves, and Vim Vendors immerses us in another artist's work in Ansel. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, welcome, welcome back, frequent favourites. I mean, again, David, it's always weird introducing you to this since you're the person in charge of it at the same time. <laughs> how's everything going with you? The person in charge. The the, the boss man. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm good. I'm good. You know, it's been a, it's as I I guess it's been a it's been a challenging fourth quarter. <laughs> I've, you know, been head down trying to get magazines made and we've just sent our 101st issue to press which we know i'm really really proud of and you know very excited to for everyone to see and both my uh, august colleagues here have words in the magazine for people to read which is which is also exciting so yeah and i guess yeah we're, we're that's that's going to be launched well i guess if people are listening to this on friday it'll be like the following sort of middle of the following week that will be like launching that so between episodes so um if anyone's wants to sort of look at our twitter feed or instagram feed then that's probably where you'll see it first so yeah look be, be there around mid middle afternoon on wednesday maybe and you can you can see the new cover which is very cool i think we kind of got to you know be careful not to reveal its secrets before it's out there in the world but i i have had a tiny sneak peek and what a subject and what a cover. It's absolutely gorgeous. I think, you know, you're kind of coming high off the uh, the 100th issue, which did really well and sold really well and people adored. Like, was it kind of difficult to figure out how you were going to, you know, come back into the regular routine of just, you know, well, I mean, there's never a regular issue yeah. of Little White Lies is that they're all individual, yeah, but, you know. It, yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 it was really, because, I mean, you know, you kind of done this sort of big ambitious thing, but then you don't necessarily want to think that, like, a normal issue will be less ambitious. And I think, and I hope people 
see some stuff in there that they kind of understand took you know would have taken quite a, a while to do um there's some very cool very cool interviews in in the issue there's re- loads and loads of interviews in the issue um and yeah I, I i i you know i'm really excited to see how the cover goes down i must say i've totally lost a sense that i've lost maybe from doing doing it for so long is how people are going to react to things I'm institutionalized. I think I, I, I'm 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 so kind of in the tank with it that I've got a sort of hermetic vibe where I I don't necessarily know how how this is going to land in the real world. So when when I say that I'm excited for the magazine to come out, I'm always I'm also terrified, and I and I say that not in a kind of very earnest way. That's I genuinely am terrified that someone's going to see something in it that is like you know some some kind of hidden symbol or you know like <laughs> so, so something that just that doesn't scan or like you know is you know I, I lose sleep over it, but they have they haven't yet. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait so this is just never an accusation that you you face you're just worried oh, it no, yeah it's, it's kind of like yeah it's it's just i think it's like i would say healthy paranoia it's not like a level of where i'm kind of like clawing clawing at the walls and um i, I and hopefully you know this is not for me to say but you know being descending into the realms of antisocial but like i hope that you know, I, I'm very. I'm, I, I don't want to rest on any laurels when it comes to like how how people are going to sort of if people are going to enjoy the covers and and think and think that think they look good and think that you know understand the kind of concept that goes into each one and you know like I, that's what I hope. But you know, I'm I, I sometimes fear the worst, <laughs> and it's gotten worse over the years. I mean, uh, working with you, you hold yourself to um, very high standards, and for that we are grateful. Thank you. Speaking of someone who holds themselves to high standards, Miss Lillian Crawford, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a delight to be back. Always lovely to have you here. I mean, what have you been up to? I mean, I feel like I've been seeing your work all over the place and you've been doing so many exciting things. I don't know what you're doing in the next issue. Maybe leave that as a, I, I, a spoiler. I but possib- co- cannot possibly say, and I haven't seen the new issue yet, so I'm very excited to see see the cover. But uh, yeah, I've been mostly doing things around Paul and Pressburger. There's a huge nationwide season of Paul and Pressburger's films spearheaded by the BFI, and I've been talking about their films a lot. Um, it's been a lot of stuff to do with the Red Shoes Lately, there's a big release in December, re-release of the film in a lovely restoration. And I wrote some things for Little White Lies before the season, including speaking to Thelma Schoonmaker about the films, which was an absolute delight. And then in December, there's the release of Bluebeard's Castle, which is a, um, an adaptation of the Bartok opera that Michael Powell made in Germany in 1963, which has been given a very beautiful restoration by the BFI. So I'm going to be talking about that a lot um, and trying to encourage people to see this mad opera film that I really love. Well, I mean, you know, don't don't have to convince me too hard. I mean, that sounds absolutely wonderful. And like, you, you've got such a sort of um, passion in particular for the red shoes. I mean, I know you've written a little bit about it. I mean, what is it for you that like really makes that film so special? Yeah, I, I was asked this recently because I was doing a video essay for the London Film Festival, which was all about autism and cinema, which I've talked about on on this podcast a few times, but I, a lot of the work I do is 
is the relation is about the relationship between autism and film and relaxed screenings and how we can make film accessible to neurodivergent people. So I was talking on that and and they asked me about my love of the red shoes in the same way. And it was about the sort of form of escapism that you can have through that film and through dance and ballet and the entering of of the ballet dancers sort of subconscious world, which I find so incredibly powerful and beautiful and is really a space to exist in. It's very much a film all about choosing between life and art um, and why anyone would choose would choose life over art is, is, is beyond Pound and Pressburger and, and I suppose beyond me as well. Well, very interesting theme that we'll come back to, I think, with um, the latest Vim Vendors. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um... It's, very, it's very pertinent. The way that Vim Vendors has made his, his 3D documentaries, um, I very much see as a sort of successor to, to Paul and Pressburger's filmmaking. I mean, I feel like I've recently, and also kind of with the nature of the strikes and um, with sort of the nature of like where I am in sort of my evolution of thought, I'm thinking a lot about this sort of like art versus commerce issue when it comes to filmmaking. And I really like not just too heavy handedly segue into what next week's films are going to be, but like I'm so curious about when you get this gap between the way a film is marketed and what the actual film is. Um, like it does feel like, particularly I remember when I saw The Red Shoes, expecting it to be a lot more dour than it was and not kind of like such a joy. And then, yes, there's there's sort of been this strange trend also with all of these trailers coming out for like Wonka, Color Purple, Mean Girls, which like disguise the fact that they're musicals as well. Like, I mean, yeah, did you it's think really, that's like a it, jarring it, yeah. issue? It's really interesting. And it's interesting to talk about in the context of Pound and Pressburger because trying to sell these films and what the big selling point now is for they're so colourful and they're filled with music and they're really beautiful and everyone wants, you know, something you have to see on the big screen because you need that kind of sound and that kind of colour in, in a cinema. But the reason why the film, some of the films weren't, weren't so successful was because Britain was moving towards sort of kitchen sink realism and the new wave and people wanted something a bit more grounded in reality. So it's really extraordinary to see these trailers for musicals that don't actually show off the music and the dance numbers and all of these big sort of cinematic aspects. I'm not a huge trailer person anyway, so I don't, it doesn't really affect me, but I can, it's it's so odd seeing the trailers for something like Wonka or Colour Purple or Mean Girls, that that none of which have any sort of musical numbers. I was convinced that Barbie was going to be a musical because it felt strange that they were sort of resisting showing, showing any of the, 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 like the, um, the, the big musical number in Barbie. Uh, it's, it's such an odd marketing decision. I don't know what it is. I, I, I think it is to do with like, very, it's a very simple calculation that they don't think men will go and see musicals. So, so to hide that aspect, they, that they, they can basically get them in and then it's like a trap, you know? <laughs> Like they're they're through but the door. Do you they're... think men would go and see Mean Girls just on the condition that it yeah. wasn't? Oh, a yeah, musical? I think I think if 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 it's if if it's an idea that it's a kind of com- it's a kind of teen comedy, then I think you're going to get a more sort of maybe younger male demographic into that film. But you know, I think I think musicals definitely have a sort of I guess you know I, 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 in my eyes a very negative stigma attached to them in terms of like the type of people who would go and see a musical you know so so I think I I suspect that it's just a very simple 
calculation in terms of like men won't go and see this so let's let's just not mention it or make or make a big deal yeah, about but it. But when I used to work in um, kind of food and hospitality, though, we used to have this thing called bill shock, where it's like, okay, you can upsell and upsell, and being like, would you like a side of avocado with that, or would you actually like to make that a large glass of wine, or would you like to kind of you know add all these things? But at the end of the day, if you get to the point where then some what actually somebody is presented with at the end of their meal is like. Uh, you know, jarring to them, you've lost them as a customer forever. And so I do wonder, like, sure, maybe that might get a sort of few unsuspecting non-musical lovers into the seats of cinemas. But like, do we really want to present people with not what they thought they were buying? They'll be back. And it's it's all about the weekend anyway. So, you know, as long as they can kind of get over that little hurdle, then it's all good. Well, I don't know that it is all good because it's like I was rereading James Gray's interview not long ago where he was talking about how um, studios should be willing to lose money on art films. And he's like, it's not so much about what you earn necessarily that weekend or what that box office is, is getting people out of the trend of going to the cinema as an activity. It's a thinker. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, are there any like egregious ones that you guys can think of in terms of like what the trailer presented was completely not what the film delivered? Hmm. Hmm. (laughs) In fact, I usually have the opposite thing where I feel that like the trailer gives too much. I'm the, again, wrong person to ask about this because like I don't watch trailers if I can avoid them. The only the only context I'll see trailers is if I'm seeing a film at a kind of public screening and they're on the screen. And, and it would be a case me too. of having to I'm like, exactly walk the same. out or close my eyes. <laughs> I just feel like trailers for me are spoilers. I mean, you know, I'm yeah. going to see the film anyway. So I'd rather go in naked. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. <laughs> so I, I, I can't really think of, like, there aren't many trailers where I that have sort of, made me want to see a film i will just watch the film because it exists rather than rather than because i've seen a trailer for it but i i imagine it probably appeals to a lot of people and gets them in so i can see why they would want to block out i suppose it's it's very odd to sort of not be willing to target a film like mean girls the musical to women and to still need to sort of change the trailer with the idea of 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 targeting a male audience as well as a female one it's very odd yeah i i think probably the one that i found most obsessing in recent memory was um i do like m night shale and um he the trailer for glass looked great and uh that film was terrible god bless him he's done much more fun stuff since but yes it does feel like it was much more again it was sort of a bit more of an event when a trailer came out i remember when the phantom menace trailer came out and george lucas put it in front of like some tiny indie film and people would pay their like you know 15 dollars or whatever just to go and see it in order to see the trailer can't imagine doing that anyway it's a bit like the music video it's it's sort of a a relic of my of my youth you know almost as old as i am is the french revolution (laughs) (laughs) sorry i was going to say speaking speaking of films where the trailer doesn't reveal it's a musical oh yeah well speaking of films where the trailer doesn't reveal that it's a comedy i reckon uh let's get on to the first film of the week napoleon Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member who receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. 
Napoleon details the checkered rise and fall of the iconic French emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte. The film follows Bonaparte's relentless journey to power through the prism of his addictive, volatile relationship with his one true love, Josephine, and his visionary military and political tactics. So, Lillian, you know, Napoleon is someone I know of sort of just the basics about there has been some criticism about like the historical accuracy of this piece i mean like was that something that you knew enough about napoleon for that to be jarring or was it all sort of you know absolutely fine and flowed into your mind yeah well i always think that there are two sort of approaches to historical subjects which is that you either sort of attempt to be historically accurate and inevitably fail or you immediately tell your audience this film does not care about history which this film does because it begins with the execution of Marie Antoinette with an Edith Piaf song playing and it's it's very clear that this is not real and I think that if people are going to see this film and in a sort of the crown needing <laughs> to remind people on Netflix that it's historical fiction rather than historical fact, then may- 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 maybe you shouldn't be trusted with-, <laughs> with watching this film. But I think it's quite obvious throughout that none of this is attempting to capture a real historical person and an impression of the past. And I and I don't think that that's something that, that I'm minded. And I think that Ridley Scott by now has made that very clear in his in his approach. His interview style is of course rather rather infamous by now of anyone who sort of questions questions his style and his approach and his his sort of disregard for the historical advisors that that he has working on the film that he will just sort of tell them to fuck off. And I and I, I think that the mantra behind this film is that everything is done because it looks cool on a big screen and that for me was delightful and meant that it was endlessly entertaining in its approach you know there's a, there's a scene with the battle of the pyramids where when napoleon just fires cannonballs at, at at the pyramids in Egypt and there's a very famous historical myth about the Battle of Austerlitz in, in 1805 that Napoleon achieved his victory by firing cannons at the ice and sinking the enemy troops um, which is shown in the film it didn't happen of course but it, it looks absolutely wonderful and the, the shots of cannonballs going through water and blood in the water just looks wonderful on the screen so I don't have any issue with, with the decision to, to do that Yeah I mean did that work for you David sort of a biopic of I suppose like Napoleon the myth rather than Napoleon the person well it's it's Napoleon the brand I think when it comes to Ridley Scott I mean there's there's a kind of SEO aspect to this film where you think that like the name is just that almost like a kind of afterthought that the subject is the afterthought and like we've got all this cool material but we need we need to we need something to kind of like coalesce it and uh sell it so i mean that's that's a very cynical read and i know i know and that sort of ignores the fact that there there probably is a few you know bits and bobs that are like of, of like actual historical fidelity you know we're, we're looking at ridley scott and we're looking at the script writer but you know i i speak to loads of people like production designers and prop makers and things like that and i know that those people all have the utmost care in trying to make stuff that is authentic so i feel that there's like this sort of patina of authenticity around this sort of central just globule of an- anachronism and grotesquerie i think but yeah you know i i don't mind i'm i'm very mixed on this film in 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 that respect because like 
I I don't. I'm going to sound very like fuddy duddy by saying this, but like, so I, I find, I find the Ridley interview routine quite grating and this kind of disregard for, for, for history and like, you know, telling people to F off and whatnot. It's a bit like, you know, if you're not, if you're not at least trying to sort of engage with the, you know, using this, this opportunity to engage with some kind of reality and at least, you know, if you're going to, if you're just going to make stuff up or, or just print the print the legend, you know, as 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 the movies say. Then at least try and do something with that. I mean, I think there are filmmakers who use the medium to frame myths like that in a way that actually kind of gives the gives the viewer a sense of like, well, this might not have happened, but if it did, this might, this is what it would have looked like. And and I think that it's, it's, for me, it's very lazy that the fact that they just like. Scott just takes it at face value and is like, no, this just this is this was the this was the most fun, dramatic and uh, engaging version of this event. So we're going to just run with that and to hell with the the record. So yeah, that 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 kind of irritated me a bit. But then you know, as you say, as you said at the top, I mean, maybe maybe the way he kind of gets around that sort of wriggles out of it a bit is like by sort of framing it as a slight kind of weird absurd comedy and and I think that's where Joaquin Phoenix comes in yeah I I suppose the thing is that I kind of feel with stuff like this is fundamentally whenever we're kind of reducing a life into any sort of narrative anything but like a one-to-one map is going to be fundamentally choices deceptions I mean arguably so he's making a choice which is sort of fine by me because we're not kind of just necessarily we can't get into the irises of Napoleon and experience every minute and every thought as he did so you know one has to just kind of go with a thread I suppose yeah I've kind of been on that thread for a while I'm one of the few people who really enjoyed House of Gucci. I mean, it has many terrible things about it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm perfectly... Well, you in the box office. Well, yeah, but I, I, I just, I kind of find the anachronism hilarious and the ridiculous accent. I mean, no one's doing an accent in this film, which which is purposeful, I, I, I'm sure, and, and probably probably for the best, but Joaquin isn't, isn't attempting to do his best sort of French accent, because it, it might actually, at that point, verge into sort of offensive parody rather than being uh, humorous. But I suppose that's also an attempt to to signal that this isn't the real Napoleon, but a sort of American um, mythologized version. But I, I found the choices of music particularly fascinating in that regard in in his later films where I don't know what advice he gives to the music department or or what choices they make but the music in this film as I said it starts with PF and then there's this original score by Martin Phipps who also did the later series of of The Crown which the film has a strange sort of resemblance to in its approach to to the past and then it also has classical music that Ridley Scott has clearly heard on Classic FM and decided to sort of scatter throughout the film without any regard for when or where it was written. And it's, it's just very jarring. But the most jarring thing is that he uses the opening music, uh, Dawn from Pride and Prejudice by Dario Marianelli, as at two points during the film when Vanessa Kirby is playing Josephine. And it's incredibly distracting that this very well-known cue 
of Kira Knightley as Elizabeth Bennet sort of walking through the beautiful pastoral landscape is suddenly used for Josephine hoisting up her skirts and showing to Napoleon her, her genitals and saying that if you look here, um, you will never want to conquer anything else. And that, that is one of the weirdest moments I have, I have experienced in a film. But Vanessa Kirby carries that off very well, I think. And she's she makes for a very formidable and powerful Josephine in 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 many ways. And the the, the sort of repartee between between her and and Joaquin Phoenix is really at, at the core of, of of the film. I mean, the action sequences look extraordinary, but but really, I suppose in in terms of the the actual character, it's really about about their relationship and my main criticism as 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 it is with all aspects of this film is that it feels like if this feels like a trailer for the full version which we we know exists and is going to be released next year which is an hour and a half longer at least yeah i think the full version's four hours and this is two and a half yes exactly so it just feels like it feels like a film where 90 minutes of it is missing. It doesn't feel like any of these sequences are sort of, or or the threads of the film are fully carried out. It feels like they've been, it's been chopped up and and made into a shorter version rather than a film which has been, had very the 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 other scenes, the additional material carefully removed from. And um, I believe that a lot of that material is going to be about their relationship and and about Josephine. So I'm very excited to see the full version of this film um, where that character what, what, will be What more is there to say further? about ju- that, that relationship? <laughs> I mean, you know, like, yeah. you know, it, it's it's fairly cut and dry. I mean... <laughs> but the se- what I mean is that the scenes sort of end so quickly. It, it, it's quite frenetic throughout. The battle sequences feel like they're playing out in full. But I kept thinking, oh, we've cut, we've gone away from this scene. And it felt like there would have been more material that has been that has been removed. I, I, I must don't, say, I, I don't know. Do you? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, from, from I guess from my perspective, I, I thought I thought the battle scenes were really was were great, and you know, Ridley Scott can pretty much do them with his leg, hands and legs tied. I rewatched Gladiator after seeing Napoleon as a kind of, you know, just a sort of reminder of that as well. And for me, I think that's a, it's a much better film because I think, I mean, that yeah, the, the, the action scenes in that film are astonishing. They're, they're a little bit more intimate, which I think makes them like more interesting. And the fact that the actual character is involved in them, whereas the, 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 there's some fun elements in Napoleon, which I, I love this idea. And, I, and again, I don't know how, it's so sort of loosey-goosey with the history that you don't actually know wh- whether to believe it or not. But the film seems to suggest that Napoleon would command from up on the ridge, as is kind of the tradition for, for, the, for the general, but really couldn't help himself, like often couldn't help himself and really just wanted to sort of ride into battle with his sword waving and get get into the the, the mix with things. Sorry, going back to what I was saying before, that actually the 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 action sequence was great, and I think that you know Ridley has this 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 you know he can he he he's really good at them. I just found that everything in between was I was slightly nodding off. The film is hooked onto this like I this this notion that you know here's the woman behind the man, and he you know she's the one who for whom he is kind of conquering the world and there is this obsessive relationship where the emotions aren't necessarily there isn't a kind of quid pro quo there and it's it all feels a little bit like we we need to sort of bolt on a love story or a romance or some erotic intrigue underneath to sort of justify all of this and for me it just didn't really feel like it went anywhere and yeah i i mean in terms of the the, the fact that it's kind of this is a truncated version yeah i mean the, even the behind the scenes intrigues where he's suddenly 
made em- emperor and then he's suddenly banished and then he's suddenly back and you know all of that stuff actually was i felt you know just it it just happens it all happens very quickly and without without with very sort of scant explanation as to to why and how he kind of is able to kind of yo-yo back up and down the ranks in such a way but i'm not going to be watching the four hour version i've I've got to say sorry sorry kids oh i i've had enough oh you couldn't wild horses couldn't keep me away from the four hour version i'm so excited to see it but you know i i get what you mean that in a way clearly like choices were made that we're not doing the sort of conventional biopic and i'm grateful for that because i hate nothing more than a biopic that could fundamentally be like it's sort of a dramatization of a Wikipedia entry. See Oppenheimer. But, uh, yeah, piss off Oppenheimer was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but it, in this case, it's almost that, like, having seen the last duel, I almost wanted more of an angle. Like, I wanted it to be a little bit weirder, as much as I sort of, I could understand that with someone who there's such a kind of fixed cultural imagination of, like Napoleon, where you do have to sort of do the big story beats. But I, I kind of would have liked it to have been a little odder, maybe just be the battles, maybe just be his this relationship with Josephine. I, I, Do you know I, what I, mean? I don't think it's a film that's about anything. The subject is Napoleon. The reason to sort of show us all this stuff is Napoleon. But there's no actual kind of, you know, central driving force to what is what is the story we're telling here? What are people supposed to be taking away from this? And I feel that like the very fact that there can be a two and a half and a four hour version of this film adds to my feeling that, that, there, that it isn't about anything because it can just be kind of extended and contracted at will and it will still operate in the same way. And it's just meant to be like a bunch of stuff. But I concede enjoyable stuff. Yeah. I didn't mind that it wasn't about anything. It just it felt like someone playing with tin soldiers. Particularly, I really started to realise this at the Battle of Waterloo, when you have Rupert Everett. And it, I mean, that's one of the other great things, is that you have these sort of British comedy figures, like Miles Jupp playing Francis of Austria, which was absolutely delightful. It's very funny. And I didn't mind that it wasn't about anything, because... I kind of miss this kind of blockbuster, which is which which really knows how to have fun with itself. At least this film has a, a lot of craft to it, and and I think that the practical effects look absolutely stunning. Fully agreed, David, our lone dissenter. Um, do you want to go first with your scores in anticipation, um, enjoyment, and in retrospect? I'd probably say in, in anticipation's three, which is very high for me for a Ridley Scott film because I do I do not tend to dig his stuff much at all (laughs) but obviously like Joaquin being in it is a selling point I like Vanessa Kirby as well it's probably a three as well for enjoyment in that like you know I certainly got a thrill out of the battle scenes and I and I do you know I totally agree Layla about this idea that at the end of the day Ridley Scott is like a boy playing with his tin soldiers and, and and we're watching him and and he's actually I think he does play with them in those battle scenes in a really fun way it would be so cool if he was in, as interested in you know the nuances of history and character as he is like in sort of you know battle strategy and like sealed knot and all that kind of stuff but it's just, i just don't think it, he is and he never will be and pro- yeah probably like probably a two i i, I in the end i just i just was like nah like in just thinking about the film it just it, it just didn't appeal i did I, I i i felt it dragged by the end and yeah the idea of a four-hour version repels me somewhat <laughs> Lillian what about you 
Uh, what are your scores? Yeah, um, my anticipation would be a three. I, as I say, I, I, I weirdly enjoy even the sort of bad Ridley Scott films. He's just a very funny filmmaker to me. Enjoyment four, there's a scene where a horse gets hit by a cannonball and it explodes. And that was one of the most exciting things I've seen on screen in a really long time. Okay, and well, you're no longer a vegan. No. <laughs> with that, with those it, it was just one of the most baffling choices. Um, and I kind of kind of loved that. Um, and, and in retrospect, I'd say a three, which with with absolutely the, the belief that this will move up to a four when when I've seen the full version, if it if it does, because I, I do believe that it probably will expand on some of those threads and make them a little more consistent and much less frenetic. But as far as far as two and a half hour long trailers go, it's it's um, it's a very enjoyable one. Yeah, no, I'm I'm very much in line with you, Lillian. Maybe three in anticipation, four and a half maybe in enjoyment, just because my mother is like a giant Napoleon nerd and I could <laughs> feel her getting like really angry, which added to my like, like enjoyment of it. Yeah, like I think it's like a, a real 3.5 movie um, in, in retrospect, but I, I'm very much open to um, leaving... David in our wake and going in to watch a screening of the four hour version and then um you know texting him about how he was wrong all along and this actually Please turned do. out to be just a masterpiece in the director's If you could just text me, that would be so nice. <laughs> anything, any communication. Even worse, we'll text you and then we'll kind of push you to publish that that is the official Little White Lies take on the four hour version of Napoleon and you won't be able to bring yourself to kind of fact check that. <laughs> Ouch. Next up, it's Fallen Leaves. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In modern-day Helsinki, two lonely souls meet by chance at a karaoke bar. However, their path to happiness is beset by obstacles, from lost phone numbers to mistaken addresses, alcoholism, and a charming stray dog. So, David, I don't know a lot of the context of this, so we're kind of relying on you to fill it in. This is sort of part of a wider piece of work by Aki Kurosamaki. 
Yeah, Aki Karismaki. He is, I would say it would be, I think you'd be hard to name someone who is a more famous filmmaker from Finland. In fact, his the second most famous filmmaker from Finland is his brother, Mika Karismaki. So their family are, 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 are holding the number one and two spots there, which is pretty, pretty an impressive feat. Um, yeah, he's been making films for like probably about 40 years now. His debut was a, uh, a, a an adaptation of Crime and Punishment, which, which obviously a very ambitious first film to make and throughout his 40 years he's he's kind of honed this style as a kind of I guess like a sort of cinematic beat poet and he is interested in hard scrabble lives in out like the I guess the sort of a lot of things that come out of the Finnish character, like such as like alcoholism and drinking in pubs and people who are not very expressive when it comes to their emotions, dogs, big thing, live music, very like local live bands. And he's one of those filmmakers who all of his films are sort of variations on the same idea and story like someone like oh you know ozu or you know you watch a bunch of ozu films and you'd you'd, you'd you it would be a difficult task to sort of t- like differentiate them to someone else and i think it's 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 kind of similar to, with charismaki as well because when you've got a film and it's like oh it's about a guy it's about an alcoholic guy and he's he gets together with this girl who's, who's lost her job and there is this miscommunication and they have to search for one another it, it could it, it just could apply to like five or six of his of his movies but i guess the, the twist is that so many of them are great like and and including this one i think so he and he actually announced his retirement in 2013 after his previous film the other side of hope so there was a while that people were kind of thinking that that was going to be the end of his career or that was going to be his swan song and he and he, and he was only in his early, i think he was sort of early mid 60s so that there was a feeling that oh you know if that's your decision that's obviously fine but you know hope you're okay you know yeah and it was you know obviously him, seeing him come back with this one has been amazing and i think it's part of a kind of what he's called his proletariat trilogy which is like three films including 2009's la Havre, uh which was set in France and and the and 2013's other side of hope and i guess they're all about kind of working class m- men dealing with the strains of working class life and all all that that comes with it and you, you there's lots of kind of bittersweet humor and i think he's he's sort of drawing on all these all these kind of ref- i mean he's he's charismatic he's like a major major cinephile and his films are usually packed with like what one of the little kind of easter eggy things in in so many of his films is people will be having a conversation and they'll in the in the background there'll just be a random film poster for like an obscure 1940s melodrama or, or like a, a, a 1980s action film. Like he just has these kind of film posters and cinephile references everywhere. But that's it's, his films aren't necessarily like, you don't need to have seen or know about those films to, to, to get what he's doing. But there's a, there's a spirit of, of, of the, of the way he tells stories and the way he writes and the, and the, and the characters that is very much ripped from the classic era. And he shoots on, on, on film every, every time with it with, and he's used the same, cinematographer for every single one of his films since 1983 so uh, Timo Salinen his name is yeah th- that that's the context that's the whistle stop tour of Maki Karazmaki well Lillian assuming as many of us do a, a, a sort of a lesser amount of context I mean like does this work kind of stand alone as a sort of intriguing piece of work for you yeah I mean my familiarity with Karazmaki is not 
not huge. I haven't seen that many of his films, but I, 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 I always sort of thought of him as a sort of Finnish Jim Jarmusch. And I think that Fallen Leaves very much sort of falls into that. And, and there's, <laughs> there's a sort of, I don't want to give away too much, but there's, there's, there's a very amusing sort of Jarmusch reference in this film that I, I think a lot of people will probably find quite surprising and, and, and enjoy. And it leads into what David was talking about, um, about sort of his, his cinephile references. And there is this, this sort of cinephilic humour to this film in particular. And what I really really loved about it was that it is this sort of proletariat strand of Karasmaki's filmmaking. So it's very, it's very much about sort of two incredibly ordinary people, but that they are sort of able to have a romance that would come straight from a European art house film. And those, those film posters in the backgrounds, they always seem to have a little nod to a reference that, that the Karasmaki is trying to make within the film. So there's a scene where Ansa, the, the, lead female character gives to um, Halopa and the guy her address and he folds it up very neatly and puts it in his wallet to stop it from from getting lost because it previously her number previously got lost and there's a poster for Bresson's L'Argent in the background and just that sort of detail of of signalling pay attention to the the paper and the way it's going to move and then closing following that object rather than staying on in mid shot with the two characters is just such a wonderful way to shoot a scene and it's it's all sort of structured like that but it's not it's never sort of static or or dour in any way there's a really wonderful moment when there's a there's posters for brief encounter in the background and, and one for le mepri and tchaikovsky's the final movement of tchaikovsky's pathetic symphony comes in and it goes from being this very sort of realistic romance um that's quite deadpan to, to suddenly being quite lavish and al- almost there are these sort of musical flights of fantasy for, throughout the film that that come in and elevate it and show that, you know, these these ordinary people are also able to have this kind of romantic drama that I found incredibly beautiful. I mean, we, we I joked earlier about Napoleon being a surprise musical, but actually there there are musical aspects to Karasmaki's films. The karaoke bar in particular is is wonderful and there's like the slight absurdism of of someone singing a, a Schubert lead in in a karaoke bar, which I I, I thought was 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 delightful. It those those scenes feel like um, something from a Lynch film, particularly Twin Peaks, when you're just sort of cut from the action. Suddenly, someone will be singing singing in a bar, and it breaks up the film. You mentioned Ozu, I suppose, with sort of pillow shot like aspect to it, and it just it just forms this really really beautiful tapestry. I immediately watched the film again after I first watched it and I'm really glad I did so because it's very short so it, it's quite easy easy to do that and I, sp- I started spotting more of these these little references and see where the threads go through the film um, so yeah I, th- I think it's a sort of perfect autumnal watch having done a, a bit of a sort of rewatch recently I think I think that the, the music it's very like every single I, I, pre- I I'm pretty certain don't quote me on this but I'm pretty certain like every single one of his films has a, a kind of live music interlude in it that that kind of crops up in often in quite a random way like some some people will suddenly be at a bar and then there'll, there'll be a bar band playing and then we'll watch the whole song play out or one of the characters happens to also be in a band and we'll watch the whole song play out and he's in fact his um his his first film that he made was a documentary about like the like the fin- like Finnish mu- underground music scene and it was this, it's like this two and a half hour documentary where he's where it's just him he he was on the road filming tiny bar bands and one of his actually biggest films is called Leningrad Cowboys Go America which is like really funny and that that's, that actually has a, a Jim Jarmusch cameo in it uh, and yeah that that's 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 his kind of like 
you know, he he invented the band based on an, an existing like uh, Finnish bar band. But yeah, the music and the musicality of, of of the film, and and it's interesting. Yeah, when you talk about the the, the his use of classical music, that's something that's only come. He's only started doing that in his later films. Like uh, it, his early films would have only like pop and rock song on the soundtrack, uh, almost like a kind of john waters-esque type thing where like it was 50s like rockabilly songs and that was it like finished language yeah he's he in in his in his sort of latter day and i think i think like actually the half and, and other side of hope which he also uses classical music in they show they show i don't know if it's his age but they show quite a sort of sentimental side that that he doesn't hadn't really had before and this one i think of of the three of his later films, I think this is the best one in that in the, I think that sentimentality is 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 kind of packaged in a way that's not too over the top. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I can see. You I mean it, it's that kind of difficulty? I think with I guess what you sort of classify as tragedy comedy of you know where that balance lies tonally, and I I can see that it sort of pushes the boundaries at either end of the spectrum. If you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, there's a very dark undertone throughout the film. I mean, I said about sort of you have these fantastical elements and these romantic elements, but I mean, the use of the pathetique is that it's despair and moving towards death. And it's all all very, very alarming because throughout the film and the other sort of audio that keeps coming in is news bulletins on on the radio talking about the the Ukraine war. So it's it's reminding us that there's this this very sort of darkness happening in in the offing almost. And and I get the sense that that's sort of charismatic as he sort of gets older that that these kinds of preoccupations are always there and how how can we focus on something as small as this romance when there's something so big going on in 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 europe around us and i suppose we've sort of moved that the the, we we still sort of have that with 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 covid in 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 films i think of something like worst person in the world which ends with the scene with people wearing masks and it's sort of a nod to the fact that this all this is now taking place within within the context of a global pandemic and i suppose um that the, the those citations of of the war in ukraine is is what is what's um happening but i i really love the 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 two performances as well and i think i think it would be good to to, to mention that uh, that alma pusti terrible finnish pronunciation um as answer is just really wonderful she was um the lead in a wonderful biopic of, of Tove Janssen, um, the creator of the Moomins, which um, she's absolutely wonderful in, is 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 sort of her her second prominent role, I, I, I suppose, and she's just so compelling in a way that really reminded me a lot of Chantal Ackerman's female protagonists, in that we sort of spend a lot of time with her just sitting silently and looking at the camera and those moments are filled with such emotion and thought and she's she's wonderful in the expression on her face so i thought that she was a really compelling protagonist which is isn't always how i would feel about the the charismaki films that that i've seen Wow. I mean, I, I do believe you, Lillian, to be one of the podcast's most compelling protagonists as well. So Aww. always very excited to hear your thoughts on such things. But um, scores, I mean, and these are the ones that we'll go by. One or five, these are the metrics by which you operate. <laughs> well, I, I, I will <laughs> be more tempered than that, I suppose. Anticipation was a four. I 
was uh, uh, was looking forward to seeing a new film from Kazmaki. As David said, he th- thought that he'd retired and was coming back. And and as I said, I I really liked put see put I can't say her name <laughs> in in Tove. So I, I was delighted to see her in another film. So so yeah, four. And then enjoyment, I'd probably also say a four. It that might increase if I watch it a third time. My interest wasn't immediately sort of peaked by it. It came. The first time I watched it, sort of about about half an hour in, when I really became engrossed, and then that was why I really wanted to watch it again to to watch it with, with knowing what was coming towards the end of the film. So in retrospect, I would give it a five. I I, I think that this really is a an incredibly beautiful and moving film that is so rich in its in its cinephilia, but in a way that, as David said, isn't alienating. That this is it is just sort of able to be enjoyed and appreciated purely on a on a romantic level. Yeah. I I think I'm a, a three three four, but I do believe that that has been somewhat depleted by this time of year. The amount I mean, this is a very hectic time of year. The number of screeners, the number of things you have to go do. So actually, I think that something had I been as lucky as the other people that got to see this in you know earlier in spring and give it a bit more space, I uh, would have more time. But I'm very excited to rewatch. David, what about you? Scores. I'd probably give it a four in anticipation. I, I mean, I love Karazmaki. I don't think he necessarily is like punching out like grand masterpieces, but but like I I I just I I like to love every one of his films. So yeah, this was this this was going to be a no brainer for me. I think probably a five in enjoyment. I just think it's just purely pleasurable time in the movies. Uh, I, th- I think that it's everything about it is just beautifully judged. And, you know, I think it's also, I think it's probably a really great entry point into his world as well, even though you're kind of coming from the back end. Um, you know, I think you could, you could easily go back and, and do some exploration um, and yeah, probably a four for in retrospect. I, you know, I think that it's like the prime pleasure of this film is actually kind of being in the world. And I think it does have something of a sort of, evanescent quality to it where it just sort of like fly you know floats away afterwards and and i don't mean that in a negative way but like it's 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 kind of delightful in its in its sort of petiteness let's wrap up with sort of another film about immersing you in a new world next up is anselm Anselm focuses on painter and sculptor Anselm Kiefer. Wimbender sets out to illuminate his work, life journey, inspiration and creative process. And the artist fascinated with both myth and history. So Lillian Crawford, uh, it is always a pleasure to have somebody that has such a kind of diverse group of interests as yourself. You love art, you love film, you love music. I mean, in, did these different elements merge together for you when it came to Anselm? Yes, um, and I think that one of my favourite Vin Vendor's films is Pina from 2011, which is the film that this that Anselm is best paired with. It's made in the same way, so it's, it's shot in 6K resolution. Who knew that it went up to 6? Um, I certainly didn't <laughs> before I was watching this. And, and, and it's in 3D, and it's so rare to see a 3D film, and I... I think that obviously there's there's misuse of 3D where it can make you feel sick. Like what was the last big 3D film? Avatar 2, I suppose, was probably the last one where I definitely felt, thought, well, I'm quite glad we got rid of this. Not least because I wear glasses and wearing two pairs of glasses is always a nightmare. But Pina was, was and um, there's some Werner Herzog documentaries in 3D. 
really show what 3D is capable of. And it's not that it's sort of, you know, I think 3D was always thought of as being something that would sort of come out the screen towards you. But for art, for art purposes, it's really all about the depth, depth perception um, and the way that we can move into an artistic landscape that you would never be able to do unless you were actually there in person and Pina um, which is a documentary about the choreographer Pina Bausch and her ballets and for that film Vendors had all of these ballets that that Bausch was was famous for restaged and shot in this incredible resolution and 3D and it really moves in a way that's even impossible on the stage. I mean, coming back to the Red Shoes and Pound and Pressburger, this is really that was really sort of the apotheosis of of what dance cinema is capable of doing in terms of putting you right in the middle of, of the stage and off the dance yourself. At for Anselm, it's obviously a different artistic medium. Um, Anselm Kiefer has produced so many wild and various different different sort forms of art. I think what's really striking is that the film works its way through the various art forms that he's worked in so from sculpture to these enormous canvases um, abstract canvases there's a wonderful sequence where we see him with a flamethrower burning straw onto a canvas which which is um, plays out an extended sequence and he's also also done a lot of work which is very sort of critical of nazism and engages with nazism in a way that's been very controversial in in germany and with the holocaust um so he's he's made sort of documentary films as well and that there are elements of that within the film but when it's really at its it's most awe-inspiring is is when we move through the huge installation spaces that he has he has these enormous sort of warehouses um mock cathedral-like spaces um his warehouses that he has to move through on a bicycle because they're so enormous and you can't just sort of walk through them and vendors is following with with these 3d cameras and it really really is quite an extraordinary look at art and a a very specific form of art that I found very beautiful and very moving. And he really allows us to sort of luxuriate in in those sequences. There's a strand of exhibition on screen now where people will go into an art exhibition and film them, but he he really takes his time with the artworks um, in a way that reminds me, I suppose, of um, Frederick Wiseman's documentaries where we have you have those long takes where you're really just sort of left to look and watch. Um, and that's what he really, really achieved so beautifully with this one. Yeah, David, I remember you once talked to me about what Finn Vendors achieves is like almost illogical, like that, like it, it sort of defies like the possibility of set. Like there's shots in Paris, Texas that don't make sense they're so incredible i mean like, do did you see some of that thread coming into this sort of documentary form i i think yeah i think with, with vendors for me is like i i would sort of describe him as a director who is like excitingly inconsistent in that i think he has made a lot of like bad films he's made a, a, a lot of good films as well but you never know what's going to come come down the shoot and I, th- I feel with this film there is an element of him capitalizing on something that he has done really well which is the documentary on Pina Bausch and has, a- and has kind of applied that to Anselm Kiefer and his world here and I think it does work I mean one thing I, I, I really to get I'll come to your question in a sec but one of the things that I, I really like about this film is that one of my least favorite I guess subgenres of films is the kind of profile documentary where it's like talking heads and you kind of you're, you're sort of learning about some someone's life or a, an event and you know I just I feel it's sort of like a you know there is a sort of lecture element or a like round table element to it that's just not very cinematic and 
what this film does is I think kind of tackles that issue of like, how can this be a profile of someone, but in a sort of metaphysical and expressionistic way. And it's, I think that the shots themselves are beautiful, but the, the, the music combinations as well, that gives gives the the whole film this sort of ethereal quality, which really mirrors the idea, as you know, to echo what Lillian was saying, of actually like being present, you know, in awe at these at these at these pieces that he produces. Um, so I I I think for for me it sort of gets bit you know there's m- big marks for actually kind of doing something that is more interesting r- rather than applying this kind of standard industry template of storytelling to any subject. There's a feeling of like what can what specifically is going to work with this with Anselm Kiefer and and it's like yeah this is this is the solution to that and it's a, it's a good solution like, yeah i mean one of my favorite films of all time is wings of desire and, and like somehow i don't know like spiritually i could kind of see the connection between those two kind of artistic expressions when in my mind i held them side by side so Lillian, would you like to give some scores onto Anselm in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Yeah, well, I mean, I love Wings of Desire and Paris, Texas and the sort of great Vim Vendors masterpieces. But I, I've sort of, in in the same way that you approach someone like Werner Herzog, it's a completely different style of, of, of filmmaking now. And I suppose... As David said, he has made some bad films over the past few years. So I was quite relieved that he was going back to Peanut, which I think is probably his last proper masterpiece um, and, and really an exceptional use of documentary and changed the entire medium of documentary through using that 3D technology. So I was very, very excited. Anticipation was probably a five. Um, and my enjoyment was a five. I really really had a wonderful time as David said it's not in a profile style so when we when it starts and you're just sort of in the middle of this landscape with these sculptures and you know I can't remember how long we're there for but it's a it feels like a very long time and I completely forgot about everything I was just totally immersed in the art so I think the ability to do that is is a remarkable skill. So I would say my enjoyment was a five. My in retrospect would be that, uh, which we haven't mentioned yet, is that there are these sort of strange fantasy sequences where we imagine aspects of Anselm Kiefer's mind and and past. There's a scene with a tightrope, and I, I didn't think that worked as effectively. I would I would much rather have sort of remained grounded in in his art rather than in that aspect of things. So it sort of pushed it in a direction that I wasn't entirely keen on. Um, so I, I, I'd end on a four, I think, um, in retrospect. I mean, I, I almost have to rate this podcast a two because I had entirely erased from my memory that awful Alicia Vikander and James McAvoy film that has <laughs> made. And now I have to kind of reintroduce that into my understanding of his filmography and I, I will forgive neither of you for that. David, what about you? Scores? Yeah, th- three in anticipation, just because I know Vendors is is hit very hit and miss. Probably four in four in uh, enjoyment and retrospect. I had a, I had a, yeah, had a, you know, it's it was a premium experience of 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 a ty- of a type of film that I tend to not go for or see see much kind of artistic value in. I mean, one thing to mention, just, just that we didn't really get to to touch on, is that like you know, Kiefer is someone who is you know it's the cliche he he holds a mirror his art holds a mirror up to society and 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 i think that he he does so in a way that in that's shown in this film where 
that is very kind of you know it's it's quite aggressive and combative but in a very in a very sort of healthy and intriguing way and you know in in the gift with the gift of hindsight that what he did in terms of you know i think his his films his his work is less about nazism and, and about like the, the the national memory of nazism and and you know it was a critique of germany's you know sweeping sweeping those those atrocities under the rug for almost an entire generation and him saying we need to talk about this we need to because if we if we're not talking about it then we're forgetting about it and we cannot forget about it and actually like seeing it in the midst of like the atrocities happening now in 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 the gaza strip it's like that the, the relevance of his work and what he was saying is is just yeah it just felt like this this is a good time to be be looking at, at him and 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 his and what what he's all about yeah i mean, i i feel like a lot of what life is about can be unlocked in the sort of scenes that from vendors has put on the screen or at least that's how i've guided myself so you know have a look at my life and see whether you feel that was a good a good method to follow but yes Terrible things happening in the world. Movies are a wonderful form to escape those things and also to sort of pass those things out. Let's get on something a little bit more lighthearted. One non-movie recommendation for us. David, do you want to go first? What is the thing that is not a movie that you suggest listeners look out for? Right. Well, I am going to go for... I just read this novel, which has been kind of like on my shelf for a while, called Brian by, by the author Jeremy Cooper. And uh, it's it's very, uh, in you know, in within my sort of field of interest, I guess. And it's basically ab- about what I think we've sort of... Uh, I certainly have lovingly termed the bag man, the BFI Bagman, which is the kind of the people who go to the BFI to see every single film and they sit at the front row and they're kind of BFI lifers who just go and go and see everything there. And it's become a, it's a lifestyle choice for them. And this novel is about one of those guys called Brian and he is um, he's very shy and it's a kind of exploration into into that that kind of cinephile lifestyle but and it's it's a it's a character study it's 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 very i think if you're if you're kind of in or hovering around that world there's a lot of stuff in there that you will kind of you know wince at and giggle at because it's very recognizable and the author jeremy cooper gets a lot of those details right it's a fun book and very i think very relevant to the listeners of this podcast Oh, yeah. No, I had that period in my life where, I mean, not the BFI because I couldn't afford the book, but when I was at university, I think I went to the um, Fulham Cineworld from my little student flat five times a week easy, always by myself. And it's like, it's actually the most beautiful ritual in the world, I think, um, if you kind of release your shame around it. So... Lillian, my darling, always excited to hear about what a tastemaker such as yourself thinks is interesting in the world at large. Uh, what is your non-movie recommendation for this week? Yeah, I've been weirdly sort of absorbed in, in movies, so um, I don't really uh, ha- have anything terribly exciting, but I've just, I've, I've been reading a lot of sort of um, I- I- English lady comedy of manners type literature. Um, so I've just started working through E.M. Delafield's Diary of a Provincial Lady, which is just an absolute delight and the sort of thing that I like to read at this time of year. Um, it's just a very amusing portrait of the life of, of a sort of 
way of living in in English country villages that has sort of died out. That um, so yeah, I've been enjoying that. It's it's actually quite there's there's a lot in common with Brian. Actually, it's a good uh, good good pairing. I think in terms of the portrait of a life told through that sort of um, diary style of of literature. So yeah, I've been enjoying that at the moment. I mean, it is kind of interesting with. Um... I suppose it's something that's like come back throughout the episode of this idea of art about ingesting art. Mm. And yeah, we've, we've had plenty of like fantastic examples of when it's done well, but like I just cannot help but sit here and spiral thinking about Empire of Light by Sam Mendes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like how piss poor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that can be. It's really quite special. Well, I've been talking a lot about Terence Davis. Um, since since he tragically died um, fairly recently, and sort of thinking about the films that have sort of tried to do what Terence Davis did, and Empire of Light and Belfast by Kenneth Branagh are probably two two of the most heinous examples of of where you don't process that kind of love for art and what an appreciation for art looks like. Whereas you watch The Long Day Closes and the way that he uses film references and music, and it's it's so. It, it's never sentimental. It's never overly nostalgic, and I think that that's that's really the essential way to to approach it. Yes, no, I fully agree. I mean, I, oh, truly, what a great loss we had in Terence Davis. Mm. I mean, to me, aside from Steve McQueen, probably was the greatest living British filmmaker. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I it, this year feels so breakneck. I don't know that we've actually given ourselves space to like mourn what a significant loss that was no absolutely on that incredibly dreary note thanks very much for tuning in and if you enjoyed the show please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast truth and movies hosted by being lady latif and my guests this week with david jenkins and lillian crawford the podcast is produced by tco london and edited by bob stankers Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.